HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, September 10th. This is the 34th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, I'm going to be chatting with the co-founder and CEO of a new tech app that is changing the way we dine. But before I introduce him, as I do on every show, I will start with my PR tip, and then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip off the show with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to march to your own beat. Follow your dreams, pursue your interests, and don't be afraid to do what is less common if it works for you. I just got back from a fabulous solo trip to Hawaii to attend the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival and for a little R&R. I often travel and dine solo, and I absolutely love it. Nevertheless, I am aware that there are people out there who find my actions strange. And really, that's okay. Flying solo works for me, and that's all that really matters. So live your life the way you want to live it. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very excited my guest, as he's someone who I think also marches to his own beat, and someone I have great respect for. It is Ben Leventhal, the co-founder and CEO of Resi, a mobile restaurant reservations app for people who love eating at great restaurants but hate hassling for reservations. Ben is also the co-founder of Eater, a national food blog now owned by Vox Media, and he recently worked for food, tech, and media companies like Food Network, Kitchen Surfing, and Cover. Ben is on the board of directors of Hot Bread Kitchen and on the James Beard Awards Restaurant Voting Committee. Welcome, Ben. Hi, thanks. Great to have you here. Great to be here. Yeah, well, um, you've had a lot going on this summer, as we were talking about before the show. 
So I wanted, before we get into Resi, I wanted to find out a little bit how you got into the food restaurant world and even I believe you have this entrepreneurial spirit about you. Um, I think that I got into the restaurant world. Um, it was a very natural uh, jump for me. It was inevitable. It was, um, in many ways, I got into the restaurant world because I had no choice. Um, but I've always loved restaurants. When I was growing up, um, the you know, in our household, you got to plan your birthday and you got to plan. There was a family day around your birthday and you got to plan that day. And uh, for me, I, it was always about going and trying as many restaurants over the course of that day as possible. Oh, cool. So we would, uh, so I'd pick a, I'd, I'd scan the Zagat and I would make a list of the places I wanted to try and literally drag my family from one venue to the next. Um, and we'd try restaurants until they were worn out. And did you grow up in New York? Grew up in New York. Okay. Um, we, we had a house in Westchester where I lived during elementary school and middle school. And then we moved back into the city. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were, we were always, we didn't, we had a Sunday night Chinese restaurant that was our, you know, go-to. But other than that, it was, uh, it was sort of a birthday thing that I went and tried restaurants. But it was always something that I was kind of inexplicably drawn to. I didn't know that. And that's awesome. <laughs> so then you, so you went, you went to school, but did you, I mean, how did you didn't set out to open your own restaurant or become a chef? No, you know, so I went to school, um, I went to school, uh, for finance and electronic media actually. And out of school, I, uh, spent five years at MTV networks in production. And, um, towards the end of that time at MTV, um, I started a site called She Loves New York, and She Loves New York was total hobby, um, but there was a guy at MTV who was from upstate New York, uh, really like a really solid guy, the kind of guy that you would set up with any of your friends without hesitation, um, and he was in New York working at MTV, kind of dropped into New York City, totally clueless about where to go, how to act, you know how to kind of take a girl on a date or even just like how to pick a restaurant for, for dinner with friends. And so he became my muse for the site called She Loves New York. And initially I was just sending him emails. I guess it was email at that time. Yeah, I was sending him emails. <laughs> Did we have email back then? Yes. Remember. Yes. I was sending him emails, you know, try this place, go to that place. You know, like that's the right place on a Saturday night for a first date. Um, you know, try you know, on a third date when you're starting to get serious about the girl, try this other place. And that kind of became She Loves New York. And She Loves New York turned into this weekly tip sheet on places to go and things to do. And actually, this comes back around to Resi because there was a section of She Loves New York called Resi, where ah. I called restaurants and asked them what time they could see two people that same day. And Resi was the... Um, Trans the uh, transcribing of that of their answer, so it would be, you know, um, uh, Gramercy Tavern, two rings, hold. We can do five thirty or ten, and that was the resi. Um, so anyway, we'll so we'll you know that's the that's like super early resi DNA. Yeah, um, and I remember your site, and I remember I met you back when you were mm -hmm. at 
Were you? Was it VH1? Yep. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, I remember. I, you were one of the first people that were like, it's like, they, that you you saw She Loves New York, and you were like, there was a there was a there was a small group of people back then who I think kind of they just you know I mean for whatever reason you saw it and you liked it and you and you engaged with it and it was like some of those people are still sort of um, I remember all the people that were supportive back in those days because it was really just this little side project I was doing um, but anyway while, while I was doing She Loves New York um, my co-founder of Eater was doing his own stuff on the web um, in fact much more substantial real stuff on the web he was the managing director of Gawker and he was writing a site called Below 14th Street um, as his as his web hobby and we got to meeting we, we met each other through Common Friends and um, you know it was immediately clear that we sort of had a shared sensibility around what dining was and what how we sort of how we saw the restaurant business and sort of the lens that we that we were looking through and um, it was around it was sort of exactly at this time 10 years ago actually in 2004 um, that we sort of started laying the groundwork for what would be eater and this you're talking about Lockhart right yeah okay. Lockhart Steel. yeah best name it's <laughs> <laughs> just cool very cool so so that's how it started mm-hmm. and I mean eater has I mean you tell I mean it's changed so much over the years it's taken off um, but that was, uh, what was the beginning like? I mean, you know, it, I mean, so, so what we, what was there, so to speak was blogging, right? So that was like, that was when Gawker was starting to get traction and the Gothamist was a, was a live website at that point. And so, you know, the backdrop of, of Eater's birth was blogging is becoming this really interesting medium, um, Locke and I had the same passion for restaurants, saw restaurants the same way, which is to say that we saw them as these amazing places to to sit down and to take in the experience and to enjoy the food, but also to enjoy the company and the chef and the front of house staff and to sort of see it as this show that was evolving and the story that's evolving, right? Um, right before your eyes. Um, so, we, so we have that shared sensibility and we have the sort of this medium that's becoming very viable and 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 deployable meaning that the software is available and it's off the shelf and you and with you know a modest amount of work you can put up a website like eater and so um so we had those we 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 had that backdrop and we both for better or for worse decided that we were going to do it as a hobby and a side project um you know, in addition to our day jobs, and so we'd do three or four posts each while I was at MTV and he was at Gawker, and, you know, it meant, it meant stealing some hours in the middle of the day, and it also meant, you know, being up at 6 a.m. doing posts, but um, we both did it because we just couldn't not do it. We loved doing it, and it was just kind of like, felt like this super cool thing that we were doing, and um, and it went from there. And, you know, we set two rules at the start. I think this is sort of part of the eater you know, part of Eater lore now, but there's the, the only two rules were no reviews and no food porn. No reviews? <laughs> Wait, no. I mean, I know it's changed. Yeah. I mean, it's changed tremendously now, and I think Amanda and the team that's there is, it's just so exciting for me to watch it, you know, as just an observer now. But we decided, when we started, you know, part of it was we didn't want to replicate the things that were out there. And because 
we thought that we, you know, reviews, for example, is not something we were going to do particularly well. You need to have tons of resources to do good reviews. You know, you have to be able to eat out on on either, you know, if money is no object, congratulations, or somebody else's dime, you know, three, four, five, six times a week um, to get the context you need to be a good reviewer, right? Mm -hmm. And so we just, so that was obviously something we weren't going to do. But covering restaurants is something you did so well, and it became, and it's always been, you have to read it every day to know, in the industry, you know, to know what's going on. I mean, you, you really created an amazing site that has changed well, and taken off. Oh, absolutely. You're welcome. So when did you then take a, change your role and sort of take, I guess, a little bit of a backseat and start doing these other projects? I know you did kitchen surfing and a few other things. So. Yeah. So I left Eater full-time sort of beginning, um, beginning at the start of 2009. It took us a little time uh, for that to happen. And what I mean by that is it took me a, a long time to kind of let go of the site. Um, it's your and baby. It took, it was my <laughs> baby after all. Um, and it took Amanda and Locke and, uh, the editorial team some time to kind of get, get me out the door and to, um, to sort of have the site be, have the site sort of not be relying on me as a sort of like main identity of it. You know, there's still people who email me and say, Hey, can you put this link on eater for me? Or still, you know, you know literally <laughs> I got an email last week. That's awesome. <laughs> so, and it, so, but you know, so it, it took, it took some time for us to separate in that way. Um, but I left in 2009 to, to do other stuff and to kind of figure out what other pieces of, of the web were interesting to me and, um, kind of what else I wanted to do. Yeah, so these projects, I, I, mean, I don't know if we you want to jump into talking about move ahead to Resi now or touch on any of them, but how did how did Resi come about besides that it started 10 years ago? <laughs> how did <laughs> well, it, I think that yeah. the, the things that I've done, including Eater, um, and the things that I did after Eater, it's all about, to me, the intersection of food and restaurants and technology. And I think that for whatever reason, it's always been... It's always felt like an inf incredibly fertile ground for 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 innovation and and for um, and for you know smart business thinking um, and an opportunity to really do all kinds of things. And I think fundamentally, if you really whittle it down, what we did with Eater was we took this available technology and we and we slapped restaurants on it because um, nobody was doing that yet for restaurants, you know. And I think. There's always sort of that's sort of a through line in my career is sort of thinking about tech and restaurants and how can we marry, how can those two, th what's the what sort of what's the right way and what's the best way um, to put those two things together, um, and so you know that that is really again that's the thinking behind Resi. You know I think we're all it's 2014 and we're all using our cell phones as remote controls for our lives. You can get a car. Uh, you know, in two in two minutes, a car can pull up. You can get a hotel room on, on, in two minutes with two taps of the screen. You can get a massage right <laughs> with two taps of the screen. I think the point is that the app, that the universe of app designers um, have really totally changed the way we think about phones, right? And we think yeah. about this device, and and Resi is based on the notion that that doesn't exist for restaurants. You know, when you're going out to eat. It's very, it's very simple. You can't open the phone, 
and tap the screen twice and be done with the decision making and be sorted. You know, if you have industry connections, you can open your phone and you can text a chef or you can text a maitre d or an owner and say, "Hey, I was thinking of coming in tonight. Can you fit me in? At, you know, can you fit me in at seven thirty? And maybe you wait five minutes or you wait a half hour or you wait two hours and they text you back and say, "Sure, come on in." If you're somebody who doesn't know the front of the house, the expectation is you're going to plan thirty days in advance, right? I mean, the no, the the tables go up 30 days ahead of time. People who are planning get the couple of tables that are there. And everyone else is sort of left to like scramble and triage. And you settle for the third best, your third, you know, your third choice restaurant. Or you go to the, you go into the, you walk into the restaurant and, um, you know, kind of give them your best sob story and maybe you get a table. But there's all this friction and inefficiency that exists in allocating tables. Not to make it sound like not to make it sound too sterile, but that's what we're talking about, right? Allocating tables, putting certain customers in certain tables, and there's a ton of inefficiency um, in how that how that all happens today, and we'd like to fix that. Yes, and I th- I, I think you are. <laughs> um, we will we're going to take a little break here, and we're going to come back and talk more about Resi and learn more about. Everything everything is doing to, to change the way people dine out. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to Lung by Iggy Dean on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Ben Leventhal of Resi, a new app for restaurant reservations. So, Ben, tell me more about, so who are your restaurant, who, who have you partnered with so far, and how does that partnership work? We've got more than 30 restaurants on the platform. Um, some of the restaurants are places like Balthazar and Mineta Tavern, Charlie Bird, uh, Toro. Um, we added Navy and uh, Kinshop and Perilla today. They're all great restaurants. All great and restaurants. And I, I know a few, a few of your favorites. <laughs> <laughs> no question about it. Um, I was looking on the app and I saw on Balthazar that I think it was like $20 for reservation. And then it said that 100% of the proceeds go to City Harvest. Correct. I thought that was cool. Yeah. We've raised almost $1,000 so far um, through tables at Mineta, Balthazar, Mirandi, and Schiller's. 
Yeah, that's great. So that's that's an option for some of the restaurants. And then with the the twenty dollars that let's say, I mean, what happens is that is that a split between Resi and the restaurant? Like, how does that work? Yeah, we take a small piece of that to keep our business going, and that's our business model is to take a piece of that, um, a piece of that twenty dollars, and uh, the rest goes to the restaurant. It's a majority that goes to the restaurant, and you know, I think we'll see how restaurants decide to handle that that revenue. I think in some cases. If a restaurant's running, you know, if it's a medium-sized restaurant and they're making $5 million a year top line and their margin is 10%, um, you know, so their profit is 500 grand a year, right? And we can add 50 or 75 grand to that. That's a very meaningful increase in their business, right? So I think some restaurants will use it to improve their business model. And that means that 50K, there's another server on the floor or there's another cook in the kitchen. Um, or the price of chicken doesn't go up next year, right? So there's all kinds of ways that restaurants can deal with it. I think in a restaurant that's running at maybe a larger scale, um, the notion of that money going direct to charity is, is really interesting, right? It's, yeah. We do, we do a direct deposit to City Harvest. Um, you know, all of Keith's restaurants uh, are subscribed to that service, and, and um, everyone's happy. Yeah, no, when I saw that, it, it was, I thought it was really cool. Because I, I mean, honestly, I don't think I'm the ideal customer for this because I'm the girl that goes solo, goes early, sits at the bar, and is fine doing that. And I think it's more of a service for the people who want the premium and are want to get a, to Mineta Tavern tonight at 8 o'clock, and you're going to get them in. So I think it's, um, I, I, I see that. I see, I see people wanting that. I guess my question or concern then is if you are paying, let's say $20 to get in, are your expectations different? You know, are you expecting a better service meal out of it? I mean, we're talking about the price of an extra round of drinks, right? I mean, it's not like we're talking <laughs> True. about It's not like we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about doubling the price of dinner. We're not talking about increasing the price of dinner, you know, 1.5x. I think we're talking about in the scheme of the of, of any particular restaurant, we're not talking about more than ten or twenty percent more than the average check, right? So, I think it's not a materially different uh, cost structure, a, a materially different um, value proposition that already exists, and we're trying we're we're focused on that because uh, because what we don't want to do is create a situation where suddenly you paid. $200 to be at Rosemary's, right? Where, which is a restaurant that's designed to have an average check of 40 bucks, right? That doesn't work. But if you're paying 50 instead of 40 and you didn't wait two hours, um, we think that value proposition feels okay. And I think to your question about whether when you pay 20 bucks, are you suddenly a different kind of customer? Look, customers that are going to be difficult are hmm. already difficult. <laughs> customers that Good are... Point. Customers that are going to come in and have a great time are already going to come in and have a great time. Yeah, true. And when you're talking about Rosemary's, I'm thinking it was designed to be a restaurant. You wait two hours to get in. Well, and if anything, you know, if anything, the customer that didn't wait two hours is probably in a slightly better position to enjoy the meal than the customer that did. In so much as anytime I'm sitting, anytime I'm standing at a bar for two hours, I start to get a little antsy. Yeah. Yeah, and I also like how you offer uh, 
a, a chef's table or a counter seat or an outdoor seat because I think those those you aren't guaranteed when you when you sign up and you make a reservation anywhere. Um, but to say, hey, I can go to Toro and I can sit at the chef's counter. I mean, that's always my favorite place to sit. So an amazing place to sit in that restaurant. Yeah. Look, I think that you know it's it's very um, it's reasonable that the conversation that people are having around Resi is about the price because it, because we are taking something that was free or you know um, on paper free and making it something that's not free in a lot of cases and so I understand that that's where the conversation is today. We see the business evolving in a way where it's not about price; it's about the convenience. It's about the idea that suddenly. You do have direct access to the plancha bar at Toro, right? That's not something that today you could do unless you could, again, unless you're a friend of the chef, unless you're a friend of the house. It's not something that you have guaranteed access to. We are really focused on creating an experience with Resi where no matter who you are, no matter no matter how much money you want to spend for a night, we're going we're gonna to put you in a great table, in a great restaurant, and we're going to set you up to have a great time. Yeah, well, I think I think I mean you're taking off. You keep adding restaurants in, and is the goal to go beyond New York and other cities? Yeah, we'd like to be in any city you know in the world, frankly, where people love going out to eat. <laughs> well, you have a lot of options then. <laughs> cool. Well, l- let me ask you my question I had from last last well two weeks ago when I had Kate Crater on the show. Um, I asked her to ask you a question, and she wanted to know what your top five restaurants in New York City are now. As we both noted, you you have um, very good taste and always uh, always are pick, picking the best places. So, well, that's nice of you to say. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I, you know, the truth is, I don't eat out as much as I used to, and I've actually been in LA and lots of other places recently. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure that this list is going to be as, I'm not sure that I'm going to live up to your expectations, but some of the good meal, and, and I also should say my sort of like go-tos are the same that they've always been for, I don't know, five, 10 years and incredibly, you know, it's the same restaurants and anything, anything I've said, the, any answer I've given to this question over the last five years has been, you know. Balthazar, Mineta Tavern, Spotted Pig, Charlie Bird, Charlie Bird. Yeah, I know. I know some of your favorites. <laughs> but I also I have a couple of I'll I'll mention a couple of newer restaurants because okay. um, I don't want to disappoint Kate. I don't want to disappoint yeah. you. Uh, Take Root, which is out here in Brooklyn. Um, oh, cool! I've which heard I of thought it. was so cool, so good, unexpected, um, just like an incredible. Uh, sophistication and nuance to the food that she's turning out, and it's like eight or ten seats. It's like it's 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 really an incredible. It's really kind of like just like this project that these two women are have embarked on. It's awesome, um, and you should go before they shut it down or before it gets un, unbearably busy. Or before before we every, have to put it on Resi. Before everyone listens to this show and <laughs> it starts going. <laughs> um, decoy. It's super cool. Uh, it's Decoy's great. Decoy's cool. I've been there. I was there with Kate, actually, and, and I've been there a couple times since, and it's it's just so, so, so good. Um, Cherish Madi, mm-hmm. McNally's new joint, the the redo of Polino's, um, very good. Stellar burger. Stellar burger, just, like, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like, it feels sort of like it's grown-up grown up pasties, is how I would describe it. Um, Ivan Ramen, obviously, and... Um, Claudette. Those are my five. I had a great meal at Claudette. 
At all the yeah, I've been I've been to them all except Take Root, and I I approve. You should go. I approve your list. That's good. So I I think Kate will too. <laughs> now the, now the silly part of this is Kate when I asked her to ask you a question asked me to help her out with the question, <laughs> and I I mean I was preparing for the show I knew I was going to have lots of questions for you but my silly question is what's your obsession with The Bachelor? <laughs> uh... <laughs> Because I know you live tweet it. I do enjoy. I do enjoy The Bachelor. Um, I just think it's it's junk food. It's like it. it, I mean, it's a guilty pleasure. It's like um, you know, it's like a New York dollar slice. It just is like in a totally cheap way, totally satisfying. I mean, all (laughs) these the casting is genius. They're Uh put the the show. It's 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 cast with fifteen or sixteen, however many you know, bachelors or bachelorettes or, or suitors there are, um, highly unstable, beautiful people. Very beautiful and people. And so, mm-hmm. like, it's just like this combustible situation that as a, as a like, as a, as a viewer is, I'm going to say, is <laughs> guilty pleasure and totally addictive. Well, I, I do watch and I do watch your tweets and it does add <laughs> a component of entertainment. So keep doing it. I mean, the cat, it's all about the casting. The show would be nothing without the casting and the guys nail the casting every time. And I like, I don't know. It's... Okay, good. Thanks for answering my question. <laughs> I, I mean, I wanted to know. So um, one more question before we take a break. What trends are you noticing in restaurants or anything that's you're excited about that you're seeing? I mean, I think that definitely casual food is getting better and better. Um, you know, I think that the expectations around, let's call it under, under 40 bucks a person food, um, you know, walk-in mm-hmm. restaurants, um, is, is just like, it just is overwhelmingly good these days. Like this restaurant, Roberta's, is... It should be on my. I should name it as one of my favorites, and I would if I didn't live far away from it. And I, if I was here more, it's just, it's incredibly casual, but so sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is like every flavor, every dish is spot on, and I think that that's actually, um, that's that's something that we're really seeing. Like the bar on casual cuisine, it's gone way up. Claudette is a great example, right? I mean, yeah. Claudette is. It's a, it's a super casual restaurant on paper, but, you know, they are doing some really delicious food that you can eat every day and not and not get tired of it. And I think that that's actually, to me, that's kind of, I don't know if you'd call that a trend, but that's really something that I've noticed happen in New York and in L.A. and in Chicago and Miami over the last couple of years is just how how high the bar has been set on casual dining. Yeah, I think I think we could call that a trend, and I agree. Very cool. All right, we're going to take another break here. We're going to come back. We're going to do my speed round game, and we're going to talk some industry news. So stay with us. It's all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network.
Okay, we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Ben Leventhal, and it is time for my speed round game. Let's go. All right, here we go. I'm going to name two things. You just pick your preference. Got it. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. You hesitated. No, I, well, this is not going to, this is not speed round conducive, <laughs> but for years it was eat out, like, without hesitation, uh-huh. but more and more um, we're cooking. So it's probably, right. if you ask me in a year, it'll be eat in, but it's eat okay. out. Okay, okay. Well, let's see if we can go fast now. How about wine, beer, or cocktail? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Large plates. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? I like to tip. I like to, um, I like to tip and uh, tip well. Then, then I'm sure servers <laughs> like you. How about communal table or chef's counter? I really like a communal table, actually. Oh, interesting. I'm more of a chef's counter. Fair but enough. Yeah, it is fair. <laughs> <laughs> How about Wells, Platt, Cuzo, or Sutton? Uh, I'm going to go... That's a tough one. I think that the guy who's who's proved to be right the most times is um, Platt. I like Cuzo because the guy's not afraid to go off the rails. <laughs> True. Good answer. Okay, here's another fun one. As of today, your coffee status, iced or hot? Oh, iced for sure. I, I, I wait to see when it changes. <laughs> iced. Okay, cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Last one, Manhattan or Brooklyn? No, well, you know it's Manhattan. Cool, that's the game. And everyone wins in my game. <laughs> so uh, let's talk some industry news. Sure. All right, today in the New York Times, Pete Wells gave one star to Barchetta, which is Dave Pasternak of Esca, his new place, also from LDV Hospitality Group. And um, he thought he liked it, but he thought it was inconsistent was basically his message. Yeah. Have you been there? I haven't been. Um, that's, you know, I think that, that, that there's several critics that have said that. Um, but I think we know Dave Pasternak is unequivocally one of the, you know, three best seafood chefs in the city. And, and he's got a great operational group, operations group behind him. And I think as well sort of was... As you know, as Wells was sort of suggesting, and I think he hedged this way. I think it's pretty clear that they're going to get it. They're going to get it right. Yeah, I went there. I did one of my solo dining experiences there, and I sat at the bar and I did the six course, six tastings of crudo, which was delicious. Um, I had some octopus. I, all the di- but the dishes I had, he he put in his I recommend column. Um, I sent my parents there when they were in town, and they really enjoyed it. So. Um, We'll see. I think, you know, I'm a big fan of his. So, I mean, one star is good. I just... Um... Yeah, once, listen, I, these, the stars the stars matter tremendously. But, again, like, they're not on the... They're not, you know, they're not going to run out of money there. They're going to have the time. They have the runway to figure it out. Guy's an amazing chef. It's a super cool space. It's a good location. I think you check back with that restaurant in six months and it's going to be packed to the gills. Okay. I will take note of doing that. (laughs) 
Okay, so let's talk another story. So yesterday, Apple came out with their big announcement with the iPhone 6 Apple Watch. And they have Apple Pay, which relates mostly to us. Um, They said they were partnering with McDonald's and a few of places like Panera. And they're also working on a partnership with OpenTable. So I think that's, I mean, this is like cover in a sense with this pay, pay by app, but it's actually through Apple. Yeah. I think that um, payment in restaurants is part of a larger theme of restaurant technology. And we are very much at a moment in time and at an inflection point where things are about to change a lot. And I think that Cover is, is is, is one of many companies that's leading the charge in pushing restaurants into the future. Resi's trying to do that too. Um, but this payment piece is really interesting. Um, it's interesting because there's tons and tons of companies trying to figure this out. Huge companies like Apple, tiny companies like Cover, companies that are big and somewhere between, like, you know, PayPal, which is a, it's mm-hmm. a huge company too. Um, everyone is trying to solve this question. This pro- it's not a problem. Everyone is trying to solve the question of, how do we lever- how do we make technology make this payment experience in restaurants better and it's totally fascinating because nothing has caught on yet and i think it's because we haven't quite figured it out i think like mike montero is our cto and he and i it's obviously something we talk about quite a bit and last night we were chatting about this uh, after the after the apple announcement and uh, one thing you know he said that i thought was super interesting is credit card companies have invested tons of money in the actual cards right like people people care about the card they're putting on the table mm-hmm. in the check folder right if you have a you know now it's sort of like become cliche but right if you have an amex black card or you have the i don't know the chase presidential blah blah there is a kind of customer who cares about what card they're putting there and there's that it says something about you the kind of card that you put down and credit card companies have spent, you know, I'm sure in aggregate hundreds of millions of dollars, if not in the billions of dollars, marketing cards because of what they want them to say about their customers. So the notion that we're going to abandon the card and we're going to make the pay- the credit card this complete commodity, this numbers thing in your phone, I think is, is it's, there's some real obstacles there. And I think the yeah. other thing, and, and this one is, this one is more, this is, I think, I'm not sure that this is a common thought, but certainly something that I think about is the thing that to me is missing in the in the mobile payment experience so far is saying goodbye to the waiter. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a notion of closure that exists on a meal when you go out to dinner. The waiters the waiters come over to the table. You've had some notion of meaningful interaction with the waiter, right? And then you get up and leave without some closure with that with the waiter. To me, it feels unsatisfying. And I think, I don't think either one of those things are going to prevent mobile payments from becoming something, from from really changing everything about how we how we pay in restaurants. But I think that those are two huge obstacles that nobody's figured out yet. And um, I'm super curious to see how how we figure those things out. Um, I think Apple Pay is a great is 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 so cool for so many different things, and I think that. You know, it's something that we'll talk about. How do we integrate that into Resi? And restaurants will figure out how, you know, 
how that how it how it talks to the POS system and how that becomes something that feels very easy and and you know totally sort of um, uh, intuitive. But I think that there's actually like we still have like some really real kind of experiential questions to solve around how that feels. Those are good points. I did not at all think about the card, the look of the card, and that. I mean, it's a it's a great point. Um, I I have thought about the hospitality aspect, and because I do think that's it's a part of the experience. Um, I think the convenience of cover when you're you can just get up and go. I think you know that's the selling point. But there's something about the whole experience. Yeah, and them coming back and. Sending you off on your way. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think cover's awesome, right? Like you, you try cover, and you're paying with cover, and you when you're ready to leave, you leave, and it's it's awesome. Like you just get up and you feel like you know it's basically like if you have a house account. You know, if you have a house account in a restaurant, um, you could just get up when you want to leave, and you leave, and that's really cool. But I there's something about it, and I'm I really honestly haven't exactly put my finger on it, but there's something about it that feels off. That mm-hmm. actually feels like it's not quite it hasn't quite clicked, and I think that when that thing clicks, then it'll be obvious, and everyone's gonna it, it'll be a, it'll be a very very standard it'll be protocol you know across all these apps across all these services what what that protocol is, but somebody super smart is gonna figure out what that like placebo thing is to replicate that last interaction, and that's gonna be um that's gonna be the real turning point for um mobile payments and restaurants. Yeah, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's going to be you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> We're thinking about it. But I, I, I'll stay, some... stay tuned to find out what you figure <laughs> out. Okay. Um, so we're going to take one more break, and we're going to come back, and I'm going to do my solo dining experience. So stay with us. This is all in the industry. Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it's time for my solo dining experience of the week. Okay, now since I was away last week traveling solo in Hawaii, lucky me, I had a ton of solo dining experiences. So I decided today I'm going to share a bunch of the highlights. Okay, so first I was in Maui, and I had lovely dinners at Morimoto and Mama's Fish House, both featuring fresh local fish and gorgeous sunset views. I also had a wonderful poolside snack of shrimp spring rolls with an awesome peanut sauce at the beautiful Undaz Hotel. But my favorite Maui meals were actually the cheap eats that I had on the beach. I had the porky sandwich from 808 Deli, which hit the spot right after my amazing surf lesson. And I had the Hawaiian Hawaiian shaved ice from Ululani's, which was just sensational. Okay, I had pineapple, coconut, and banana flavors, added macadamia nut ice cream at the bottom, and an add-on of condensed milk. It was really heavenly. And lunch. <laughs> okay, so then I went over to, Hawaii, to Honolulu. I had incredible fish and eggs skillet at rock star chef Leanne Wong's brunch-only restaurant, Coco Head Cafe. 
I had the acai bowl at Bogart's Cafe, which was the best thing ever after hiking Diamond Head in the Hawaii heat. I had a five-course tasting of the classics at Ellen Wong's restaurant with his signature butter poached kono cold lobster and the coconut dessert lived up to the height. And finally, I went to The Pig and the Lady, a happening Vietnamese restaurant in Chinatown that was recently named one of Bon Appetit's best new restaurants on its 50 best new restaurant list by Andrew Knowlton. And that didn't dis- disappoint either. I had uh, the Laotian fried chicken and the PNL Fay, or as I say, pho, with smoked bacon, 12 hour brisket, and a soft egg. So I ate quite well. Most places I sat at the chef's counter or the bar, and I received incredible service and hospitality. I have posted a lot of pictures on my Instagram account at Sherry Bayer. I will post a few more at All Industry. And I just want to say, Maloha Hawaii. Yum. Yum. Yeah. I, I, I ate well. <laughs> so we're getting to the end of the show. So, Ben, it's time for the final question. I want to see if you can ask a guest, uh, ask a question for my guest next week. I'm having on Stephanie Berghoff. She is the co-founder of Calintro, which is a culinary trade organization that you're probably familiar with. Sure am. So um, what should I ask Stephanie? Well, I feel like Stephanie probably has a, um, a very good sense of what the industry is talking about uh, and thinking about these days. So my question for Stephanie is, what is the biggest challenge the industry feels that it's facing? Okay. And how are we going to fix it? Good questions. I will ask her. Thank you. Thank you. Well, well this has been fun. And I, congratulations on Resi. And I look forward to seeing how it progresses and, and takes off. I think you're off to a, a wonderful start. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you're welcome. So I've been talking with Ben Leventhal. He's the co-founder and CEO of Resi. He's also the co-founder of Eater. His website is resi.com. That's R-E-S-Y.com. He also has a website, benleventhal.com and eater.com. And he's on Twitter at Resi and at Ben Leventhal. Now, if you miss a live broadcast, you can always find us archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We're on Stitcher and we're on iTunes. Thanks to my engineer, Jack. Thanks to Ben and everyone out there listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'll be back next Wednesday at 4 o'clock for another live show. I hope you'll tune in then. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.